the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. The primary mission of Jesus was to come and to seek and to save that which was lost. He loves all of us as sinners. He gave his life to save us from our sin. That's his objective. His objective was not to come into the world, not his primary objective, to come into the world to just start judging people. His primary objective was to come into the world to die for people because he loves us and he wants us to be saved and forgiven and to go to heaven when we die. So that's his primary objective there, his love and salvation for the sinner. What do you think was Jesus' primary mission for coming to earth? In today's message from Pastor Gary, he explains to you the mission of Jesus. Jesus' mission was not to come and place judgment on people. His mission was to come and to seek and save what is lost. He came not to judge people, but to die for people, so that no one would perish, but that all would receive eternal life through Him. Pastor Gary reminds you about the deep love Jesus has for sinners. He died for sinners so they could live. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John chapter 12 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. You know, the Pharisees who don't believe in him, who don't accept him and don't want other people to acknowledge him. They're like all discouraged. You're like, this is getting us nowhere. You know, we're not able to do anything to stop this guy's popularity. Look, the whole world is going after him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Wouldn't it be great for us to be able to say, look, the whole world is going after him. Because he even still has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And may the whole world go after Jesus. So, you know, praise God that that is happening. The Pharisees um, were jealous over his popularity and didn't accept him and just wanted to see him dead. Well, verse 20 says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. So, you know, here they are in the, in, in the temple area somewhere of Jerusalem. There was the court of the Gentiles, and, and Gentiles could not go beyond into the more sacred areas of the temple courtyard. So they were restricted, and so apparently Jesus was, you know, more in the, the Jewish area, which was more sacred, and Gentiles couldn't go in. There was a sign posted there, you know, uh, Gentiles could not go further uh, uh, upon the sentence of death, 
So it is likely that they're in the, in the area of the courtyard of the Gentiles, and they see and they recognize, however they know, one of the disciples of Jesus, Philip, and they go up to Philip. Philip, we want to see Jesus. And Philip, I don't know, he goes to Andrew, and then Andrew, you know, can't you just go directly, Phil? But anyway, he, does, he goes to Andrew, and then Andrew together, they both go to Jesus. Now, this is a kind of interesting, because remember when Jesus was born, we have Gentiles who sought him also. They came from the east. Now we have Gentiles coming from the west. These are Greeks. And um, here they come to seek uh, audience with Jesus. And Jesus replied, verse 23. Now this is interesting. I want you to notice the way that Jesus responds here. Uh, some say that he never even went and spoke to, to the Gentiles. But I, I think that what he's saying here, he's speaking in, in terms that Gentiles would understand. So I think he's saying this in the presence of the Gentiles. I think he went with Philip and, and Andrew to, to go speak to these guys because when Jesus speaks here, I want you to notice he gives Gentiles an analogy rather than Scripture because they would not have been familiar with Scripture. So when, he, you know, when Jesus is speaking to Jews who should know their own law, he will often quote Scripture, refer to Scripture, help them understand this is the fulfillment, this is what the prophet spoke, you know, and then he quotes. But not here. He's going to speak in terms of analogies to help the Gentiles understand what they would otherwise have been unfamiliar with. And so he replies here, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. So he's, he's speaking there in that 24th verse of his own imminent death. He says, you know, and, unless I die, there cannot be the birth of the church and the followers of Christ who will be ultimately then identified as Christians because of their faith in Christ. So he must die that there would be the, the fruit produced from his single death. So he's using this farming terminology for Gentiles to grasp it. Now, verse 25 doesn't speak of his death. It speaks of our death, our dying to self. He says this, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So it's interesting there. In verse 24, he speaks of his own death. In verse 25, he speaks of our death. There has to be a dying to self. You want to live, you have to die. It's, a, it's a, you know, the great paradox. If you want to live, you have to die to self. If you want to save your life and preserve yourself and live for yourself, then you will never experience a, a eternal life in Christ. Because there has to be a dying to self. There has to be a, hum a humility. There has to be a recognition that he's the one who died for our sins. And so we die to self, surrender our lives to his lordship. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now, my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very hour I came to this hour. Father, glorify or rather, for this very reason that I came to this hour. And then he says there, Father, glorify your name. Now, of course, he's speaking here in terms of, you know, he's, he's troubled. He's fully God, but he's fully man. And the humanity part of him is not looking forward to the suffering of the cross. And so he, he, he just kind of verbalizes it. My heart is troubled, you know. I, but what should I pray? You know, Father, rescue me from this hour? He says, no. Remember... 
all through the Gospel of John, he talks about how my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come, because he's on this divine timetable. And now the timetable here is about to come to fulfillment, and, and he's saying, you know, even though my heart is troubled, should I just say, you know, Father, just let's just forget this whole deal? No. He says, because for this reason, for this hour, I have come. And then he adds there, Father, glorify your name. And I know... Let me preface what I'm about to say. I know he's speaking of a unique, singular, eternal, divine mission, the cross, and only he fulfilled that. But on a, obviously a much, much smaller scale, when I read what he says, it's a reminder to me, sometimes we just want the trouble to go away. And instead of the trouble necessarily going away, sometimes what God wants to do is carry us through it so that he can be glorified through it. And, and we're so quick to just you know, say, okay, Lord, I'm in this mess, just kind of take it away. And, and sometimes his answer is, well, my grace is sufficient for you. And, I, and I'm going to glorify myself through your situation. Now, I thank God that sometimes he does remove the trouble, and sometimes he helps us avoid trouble that we didn't even know that we avoided, but that he does in heaven because he recognizes that we couldn't handle the, the, the situation, so he helps us to even completely avoid it. And then there are other times, you know, that he will just simply walk us through it. And it will be in those times that he is glorified. And so even as we see what Jesus says here, uh, sometimes the answer is not, you know, Father, save me from this hour. But sometimes we should be praying, Lord, glorify yourself in this time of my life. Well, then a voice came from heaven. This is Father God speaking here. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. This, by the way, is the third time a voice from heaven speaks. Remember in the course of Jesus' ministry and his life? You heard of, we hear in Scripture a voice from heaven at the scene of his baptism, at the scene of the transfiguration, and now here. And it says in verse 29, the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So what is this portion there about the prince of this world. The prince of this world is a reference to Satan. The prince of this world is a reference to Satan. Um, Jesus will use that phrase about Satan three times in the Gospel of John. Here, we're going to see it later in chapter 14, verse 30. We're going to see it again in chapter 16, verse 11. Uh, We also see a reference in Ephesians 2, 2 to Satan being referred to as the prince of the air, Uh, King James says prince of the air, Uh, NIV says ruler of the air. Uh, Satan does have some limited, that's why he's not king, but he's prince. He has some limited rule on the earth. But the the good news is that, um, that Satan has been ultimately defeated on the cross, so his sphere of influence is very limited. Colossians chapter 2, let me just read real quickly to you. Colossians chapter 2. Verses uh, 13 to 15, it says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Listen, having disarmed the powers and authorities, 
He made a, a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. So Satan is on a leash, but he, he has been given limited power in the earth. And Jesus refers to him as the prince of this world. But take heart because part of the defeat of Satan is what happens on the cross. And then Jesus adds there, again in verse 32, I read it a moment ago, he says, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. It's interesting because the Greek term to be lifted up has actually a dual meaning. It means elevation and it also means exaltation. That he speaks here in in a word that, that has a dual meaning. He will be literally elevated from the earth. He'll be lifted up on a cross. But in the process, he's going to be exalted also by his death, which is an atoning sacrifice that will conquer sin and death uh, for all who believe. And so it's this dual meaning. He's going to be, when he's lifted up, when he's exalted and elevated, he will draw all men to himself. So the cross will be this symbol then, uh, not that we worship the, the cross itself as some icon, but that the, what it represents to us is his finished work on the cross, and, and thereby we can be saved through faith in him. Verse 34, the crowd spoke up, we have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you still have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So he, he talks here in terms of light and darkness, and we understand the analogy. It's the idea that you know if you walk in darkness, you know you, you can't see. You know you're blind. And Jesus says, "Come into the light. Like step into the truth. Realize who I am. I am." John would even say, "I am the light of the world," and and so. Um, he's calling people to step into truth, step into, into the light, believe, and uh, then, then you won't grope around in the darkness. Then he, he hid himself from them. Verse 37 says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. So now John says, hey, some more Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom... Has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. That's very, it's very interesting there. It's like, well, you know, did they harden their hearts, or did God harden their hearts? And the answer is yes. I mean, they hardened their hearts, and so therefore God gave them what they wanted by hardening their hearts. And so, you know, that's what he's saying here. God will confirm their hardness by hardening their hearts. This is what you want. You want to be obstinate? You want to be rebellious? You want to harden your hearts? You want to close your eyes? Okay, then. Have it your way. And, and this is what happens. And Isaiah, it says, Isaiah 40, verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Notice that. And the prophet Isaiah, there were on occasions, you know, all of Isaiah chapter 53 is the great psalm of the, uh, rather the great chapter related to the crucifixion of Christ. You know, he was stricken for us. By his stripes we are healed. Isaiah saw 
prophetically the whole picture of Messiah and the death on the cross. And in chapter 52, Isaiah writes about how Jesus, the Messiah, will be beaten to the point of being disfigured. He couldn't even be recognized. That would happen to Jesus as well. So Isaiah saw and wrote and says, yet, verse 42, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. Good news. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Not good news. All right? You know, these, these are the secret Christians. Okay, don't be a secret Christian. All right? I don't, I don't know that there is such a thing. I mean, I suppose there is. Because, I, I mean, I, you know, only God knows a person's heart. But a, a secret Christian, you know, somebody, well, I believe. I just don't want anybody to know I believe. I mean, what is that? You know, and, and, and to think about... How silly that is. When you think about how people don't want, they're more comfortable to remain obscure in their faith because somehow then they think if, if they are known to be a Christian, what will people think of me? And yet when we consider the humiliation and the suffering and the ridicule and the shame that Jesus endured for us on the cross, who are any of us to say, I don't want any shame. I, I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want people to make fun of me. I don't want to. If we would stop and recognize, what if Christ had, you know, what if Christ had that added, you know, I really want to die for these miserable people, but I really don't want to suffer and, and be, you know, be naked and ashamed on a cross. I mean, he, he goes full out for us in every way and takes on the shame and the ridicule and the mocking and the scourging to say nothing of the excruciating pain that we can't even imagine what crucifixion would have felt like. And he did it all because of his love for us. And then we're like, I don't really want to put my Bible on my desk at the office because somebody might make fun of me. We got to think about that. That's the kind of thing that happens if we're not careful to just be unashamed. I, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And if we walk around feeling ashamed and denying Christ, Jesus has some pretty harsh words about that. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. And, and folks, we're living in a day and age when the real Christians have to stand up and be counted because everything is becoming vague and... and uh, Everything is becoming neutral, and everything is just, you know, about, you know, how I identify myself instead of what reality is. It's just, it's just ridiculous, crazy things that are happening. So, so you know, here they are. They're, some are believers, but they don't want other people to know. Notice here as we finish out this chapter between verses 44 through the end, uh, if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, they are in red because these are the final words of Jesus in his, in his public ministry, okay? And there are five things here for you note-takers. I just made five points from these last few verses of Jesus' final words to the public. There's going to be other things he says. I mean, all of chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 are also in red because these are things he's going to say privately to his disciples. But the end of chapter 12 are the final words that he says to the general public. And he emphasizes five things. And this is what he stresses. Here's the first thing. He stresses his identity and unity with God the Father. Look at verse 44 and 45. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. 
Look at verse 45. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. So he's making that statement about his own identity and who he is, that he is God the Father. So he speaks here of his identity and unity with God the Father. And then in verse 46, he speaks here of his truthfulness and the need man has to follow him. Verse 46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Okay? Step into the light, come into the truth, acknowledge me, you need to follow me. That's what he's saying there. Don't stay in darkness. Then he stresses, verse 47, his love and salvation for the sinner. He says there, as for the person who hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. So notice that he emphasizes his love and salvation for the sinner. He says, you know, I I came not to judge the world, but to save it. Now, how do you reconcile that with some other places in the Bible where clearly it refers to Jesus as a judge? In fact, there's a phrase about Jesus that is used three times in the New Testament that he will judge both the living and the dead. Acts 10.42, 2 Timothy 4.1, 1 Peter 4.5. Those three places say that Jesus is the judge who will judge both the living and the dead. And yet here Jesus says, you know, I came not to judge the world but to save it. Because he is judge, however, that's the secondary mission. The primary mission of Jesus was to come and to seek and to save that which was lost. He loves all of us as sinners. He gave his life to save us from our sin. That's his objective. His objective was not to come into the world, not his primary objective, to come into the world to just start judging people. His primary objective was to come into the world to die for people because he loves us and he wants us to be saved and forgiven and to go to heaven when we die. So that's his primary objective there, his love and salvation for the sinner. Number four, verse 48, he stresses the consequences for those who reject him. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. So he speaks about a future. There's going to be a day of judgment. That's not now. Now is the time to save all those who would respond. And and then that's how he concludes. Last thing is verses 49 and 50. He stresses eternal life for those who accept him. He says, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me, notice this, what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to what? Eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So, so he says, look, you know, I'm, I'm offering eternal life, If you believe and receive what I say, you'll have eternal life. And he says, by the way, uh, everything I say is not just told me by the Father what to say, but how to say it. Uh, Please underline that verse if you're married. Look, all the sisters in the house, they're all going to agree with me on this one. I can tell you right up front, they're all going to agree with me. Because how many wives have said to their husbands, It's not just what you say, dear. It's what? How you say it. All the sisters inside are like, say it again, preacher. Say it. Well, I can say it a hundred times and we still aren't going to get it. Okay. But it is a good verse for us to pray when you're in those moments, you know, when you're having 
Because Christians, you know, husbands and wives don't really, as Christians, we don't argue. We just have intense fellowship, right? And so when you're in that moment of intense fellowship, just guys especially, I mean, ladies, you know, you need to learn this too, but probably it's more something guys have to learn. Just offer up that prayer right there. Dear Jesus, tell me right now what to say and how to say it. What to say and how to say it. And he'll help us, right? Amen. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary's been going through the book of John. If you missed any part of this message, you can hear it again on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You might want to download our mobile app so you have these teachings with you on the go. That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd love to meet you. Please join us for worship and Bible study. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other info on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We hope and pray you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of John. Please know that we're praying for you too. Although we're out of time for today, keep reading on your own in the book of John until Pastor Gary continues teaching through this extraordinary account of Jesus' life on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know